The following is for information purposes only and should not be used as the basis of an investment decision. This is not investment advice. This episode is made possible by Progressive Equity Research, providing freely available, engaging investment research and opportunities to hear from a wide range of small and mid-cap UK listed companies. For today's episode, I am rejoined by Alistair Haynes, the founder and CEO of Aquis Exchange. Alistair appeared in episode three from November 2021. Much has happened since then, and I was keen to catch up on various aspects of the Aquis business and wider issues, such as the prospect for the consolidated tape and the outlook for the UK as a listing venue. Having recently celebrated its 10th birthday, I asked Alistair what it is like to have his baby reach such a milestone. Please enjoy my catch-up with the maverick, Alistair Haynes. Alistair, thanks so much for joining us today. Your baby, Aquis Exchange, is 10 years old. What I'd like just to get from you is a summary, a feeling of the journey that you've been on this last 10 years and what you've learned from it, what surprises there's been on the way. I think the first surprise is I can't believe how quickly 10 years has passed. <laughs> it was like yesterday when uh, when we started this. But, you know, I, I think we had a classic um, sort of 10 years for a successful startup business, which is going through those periods uh, which, which are just ghastly, whereby you think your business has failed, uh, even to the point I remember uh, having to have a sleepless weekend where money I thought was coming in didn't come in at the very early stages, and I'd been financing this business. And you simply, I knew I couldn't pay the staff on the Monday morning, and there were seven of us. And it was just the most awful moment in one's life because you think that's the end of it. And um, I remember to this day because five of them still work with me here. And they turn around and just said, I, d- I thought you had a major problem. What are you on about? Just pay me when you can. And, and I think it's that type of sort of camaraderie and spirit that helps companies grow. And yes, you know, we've been through that um, as, as you know, many other uh, you know, startup businesses do. And it's just part of the learning curve. Nobody can really, really sort of, teach you or train you for those moments. They just happen. If, if you'd said to me, though, 10 years ago, that we you know, one in 20 transactions would now go through the exchange you're, you've set up and you're building and you've got a technology that is absolutely cutting edge, and particularly this cloud, this new product, we've got Equinox, the 24-7 matching engine, and that we ran a primary market that last year did more IPOs than AIM. I, I know these are pretty dreadful times for IPOs. But, but you know, if you'd said that to me 10 years ago, I would have absolutely taken it. We look back with a certain amount of pride. I think the other thing, of course, is that like every entrepreneur, 10 years is one thing, but it's the next 10 years you've got to look forward to now. And I think, you know, I'm as excited now about the what the future holds. And I think we're in a tremendous position. So it, it's been you know, there are times I won't won't pretend that you wouldn't have said, oh my God, this was awful. But actually looking back, it's rather like a, when you're a child. I mean, all the summers are hot and lovely and you remember them with happy times. And I think I look back with 10 years going, these have been fantastic. They weren't all fantastic, but my God, it was an enjoyable journey now. I'm really happy where we are. That's great. I'm sure we'll talk about all those aspects and unpack some of the things you have reflected upon there. But we last spoke, it was November 2021, mm-hmm. episode, episode three of this podcast series, and obviously a lot has happened in that 
intervening period. Uh, 2022 was pretty bad news for all types of risk assets, yet Aquis Exchange continued to make good progress as a business, even though it may not have been reflected particularly in the share price. Can you just talk us through that intervening period? Well, I mean, the world is a different place. It's not just financial markets. The world is completely different to what it was in November 2021 when we last spoke. And and I think we have, I think the secret is why is Aquis grown during this time is we, we are really willing to adopt and adapt, I mean, and, and change. And, and I think that is really, really important in any business is as market conditions change, you need to uh, uh, you know, uh, adjust to those changes. And, and, and when I look back, yes, we have. We increased revenues in a very, very difficult year by net revenue up by 24%. We saw our underlying profit up by 41%. But we have three very clearly defined divisions, the Aquis Markets business, the Aquis Technologies business, and the Aquis Stock Exchange, the primary markets business. All, I'm delighted to say, are now profitable. All, we believe, will remain profitable going forward all of which I think actually have great potential for the future. I think with the markets business, though, that's probably the one which has been the toughest of all because you know, markets themselves have changed. We've seen high volatility. We've seen declining volumes. Normally, you would see high volatility, volatility with increasing volumes. Huge uncertainty. Asset managers unable to really make trading decisions while we see a war going on in Europe. We see costs of crisis. We've seen the impact on people. And that really has an effect on the way that people trade. We'll come on and I'm sure later on discuss the retail market because I think the retail market has probably been more affected than, than anything else. But you know, having said all of that, we have changed. We've launched new products, which we, when we started 10 years ago, in effect, we were a one-trick pony. Very good yeah. trick, though I yeah. say, but it was a one-trick pony. Now, we've got to have lots of tricks. And it was very clear to us, as we saw our market share start to decline, that we needed to have a more holistic approach to trading. So things that I thought were not necessary to have in the organization like dark trading or auctions or closing price uh, trading, etc. Uh, these were things that you know we didn't get involved in. And we did. And we had to change. And in, in, since we last spoke, that's exactly what we have done. We've added lots of new product. We've changed things. And I think that is what's going to lead us to the path of how do we attain a top three position for a trading platform in Europe. But that clearly is my ambition. It always has been. Um, you need to be north of 10% market share across Europe. I think from our one trick pony, we weren't going to actually get there. I think with what we've got now, we're absolutely will get there. I'm very, very confident we will do that. So the extras you've added on to your one trick pony, as you describe it, which was essentially your subscription based platform. Does any of that negate or mitigate against the core principle, the core idea that you had and you talked about? last time we spoke, that this is the world's first subscription-based trading platform. You know, one day everyone's going to trade like that, like this. Mm -hmm. Is that still the case? Or they, yeah, I, okay. I, I have not changed away from the philosophy of a number of things. One is I believe subscriptions. I'm a huge believer and fan of what they do. They change human behavior. The marginal cost of zero is 
ultimately incredibly attractive to people. It is about volume and it is about sticky business. And that if, if you look at the way the subscriptions we all have today, whether they're Spotify, Netflix, Amazon Prime, you know, people tend not to move away from them as long as the performance is good. And that does change the underlying product. It allows, it, it, you, we make more phone calls, we watch more movies, we listen to more music. And I think one would trade more. And I think that's really important because that's about creating liquidity. And that's really important in capital markets. So that philosophy hasn't changed and I'm still a great believer of the subscription model. I think the philosophy also about having markets that are less toxic, that actually have yeah. that ability to get a different type of liquidity pool out there. That is also important, but it doesn't mean that we should do that. And I think this is where I got it wrong to the exclusion of other products that are valuable like dark pools. And as you know, we bought the assets of, of UBS MTF. Yeah. That has been very good for us because we've been able to enter a, a business that will continue to grow for us, but actually enter it rather than starting at the very beginning and having to build that client base. We in basically inherited a client base. Uh, the closing auction, the market at close product, this is a product that is out there to reduce the costs for people. And it isn't about getting an improved price because it'll always be the closing price, but it will lower the cost of trading for people. So I think these things, the periodic auctions included as well, which is the intraday auctions, these are add-on products. In some ways, if you look at the subscription, maybe this is the sort of, you look at television and you think these are the additional things that you will need if you want to watch a broad range of television programs. You might want to support racing TV or you might want to look at Manchester United TV or whatever is the thing that, that interests you. And you'll pay that premium. In our case here, that's what happens. And we've added these extra product to make us a more interesting uh, exchange to go to. And, and you know, I'm pretty confident we will continue to innovate because again, Back to your sort of earlier question about, you know, what do you, what, what, why did you get that success? I think part of it is down to the fact that we did change, we did adapt, and actually very proud of the fact. In, any entrepreneur, I think, has to admit from time to time they get things wrong. Sure. Bad entrepreneurs stick with the path that they've always been on and won't change. I think the better ones actually do make that change. And I'm not saying I'm a great entrepreneur, but I, I do think that's a reason why we can continue to grow in very, very difficult times. Well, you, you made it quite clear that you enjoy change, you embrace change, and you've led change in many aspects of the way the stock market has developed over the years. Last time we spoke, bringing you back to that time, you said you had 30 subscription customers that drove 6% market share of pan-European equity volumes, and you provided over 20% of customer liquidity. How's that? How are those metrics looking today? And I guess on the volume point you made, um, is that just a cyclical phenomenon, or do you think we're permanently lower level of volumes? And maybe we can come on and discuss structures of markets and the role of Europe or London in financial as a financial center, but it feels cyclical to me. But I'm just really interested to get your take on that. Well, we've got 41 trading members, so that that's okay. increased substantially from from when we spoke in November 21. Um, our market share is actually slightly lower, and that is because um, we didn't react probably quickly enough to the changes that were taking place, where people wanted, as a, as I explained just earlier, the sort of holistic approach to trading. Uh, it's coming back. It's above five percent now, and and I can and I believe, as I say, from now on, it's a pretty clear path. We should continue to grow. 
Uh, it's always going to have bumps and hurdles and things yep. you've got to jump on the way. But, you know, I think the trend now is very clearly going back upwards again. And, and back to markets themselves, they are cyclical. I think you and I, without being rude, you know, are old enough to have been through a number of cycles here. You know, when, when things look really bad, that's generally towards the end of it. Um, you know, they always say darkest before dawn and all these things. You know, it is pretty dark out there at the moment. Uh, it is pretty miserable in a number of areas. Not enough IPOs, not enough primary um, asset managers really struggling. Um, certainly, you know, many, many clients, redemptions that are out there, money taken out of fund manager businesses, etc. These are not not easy times. But I think you've also got to look at the backdrop of what we've got here. You know, inflation, which many people in their lives in, in, in the city have never incurred inflation before. Certainly none of us are old enough to have lived through a war in Europe before. Um, and you look at post-Brexit, you look at the pandemic, a lot of things have been thrown at this market, what these markets over the last few years. So it is, I think, quite remarkable that they've been stable enough the industry to be able to cope with the challenges that have been thrown in front of us. And I remain very bullish longer term and nobody, I don't believe anybody can tell you when this, this cost of living crisis is going to finish, when inflation is going to fall. But we do know one thing, it will do at some point in time, inflation will come back and people, GDP will grow and we will come out of the sort of the, 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 the economic problems that we have today. And I think the thing that really matters to a company is positioning yourself for that. So if you can grow during these difficult times, you can absolutely, you know, rock it ahead when you're prepared for the good times that ultimately will come back. So, yes, I agree with you. We're not going to see volumes at these you know, really, really low levels um, forever. How many more bells and whistles do you need to, to add to the one trick pony that you now have? Again, I remember when shares were traded on the floor of the London Stock Exchange. So all all this stuff is sometimes hard to get one's head round. But is this going to be a never-ending arms race of bells and whistles and new products that the likes of the dark to lit sweep and the market at close auctions, all these sort of things? I think it is a never-ending cycle because yeah. what happens here is you must create competition. I am just a massive fan of promoting competition in all industries here because that creates innovation. And it's that innovation that drives the change that is ultimately the good thing for the end user. And what's got to remember, the end user are people like you and me, the end investor, whether it's through our pension plans, through our fund uh, or whatever, or savings. We've got to allow people to be able to create wealth in some way. And I think, you know, this innovation will, and not just will, it must continue because you've got to look at what happened to those investors who under the, created their money under the baby, as baby boomers. And, you know, I count myself in, the, in that generation. Very, very different to the way that the next generations are going to have to create wealth. I look at my children, uh, one of which who, who works at Aquis as a developer, um, I look at the way that they and their friends operate. It's all through their smartphones. It's all with information at their fingertips. Yeah. We've got to look at ways of which we get these people excited about the equity industry. I agree. And I'm often told that people sort of say, oh, well, Alistair, you know, the trouble with this country is we don't have an appetite for risk. Well, there are 5 million accounts in this country that are actually invested in some form of um, cryptocurrency. Now, I believe that is a form of risk. Why do we not have the same interest in equities? 
I, I quoted the other day saying we need to make equity sexy and that's exactly what we need to do. It should be a very exciting asset class. After all, it is the asset class that has performed better than any other asset class. If you look at small cap, micro cap, equity, growth and value funds have performed better than anything else over the last hundred years or so. So, you know, we must allow these people to invest in these types of early stage companies because that's where you will get long-term wealth and create the capital that, that people need. And if you look at what's happened in our industry over the last 20 years, we've seen the pension funds that I think used to invest in the year 2000, around about 39% of their funds in UK equities, now is in the region of below 4%. Oh, no. And so there has been a dramatic shift away from the way that equities are perceived, not just by retail, but also institutional pension funds, et cetera. And if you go back to the point about, you know, the, the way that we talk about equities, again, if you ask children, I say children, they're young adults, um, at, at sort of the mid-20s age about pensions, they sort of turn off and go, pensions, oh, that's for sort of people who are older. It doesn't sort of interest me a great deal. But if you talk to people of exactly the same way, same age, and you turn around to them and say, are you interested in a tax incentivized investment plan? They bite your hand off. Well, actually, that's what a DC pension is. It yep. is a tax incentivized investment plan. And of course, this is the thing that we need to, to sort of start selling it in a completely different way, because we need to somehow be in a position to enthuse the younger generation to participate in our markets, the equity markets. And that is important, not just because of getting trading up and volumes up. It is a way of financing SME companies. And I'm a huge believer of getting the public back into public markets, a huge believer that the retail market today is disadvantaged from what it should be. And I think there are plenty of things that we're looking at. I can't give you all the trade secrets, but we're looking at to completely change these markets, to modernize them so that you really get tomorrow's markets as soon as you possibly can. And in many things, you know, I think we can get that pretty imminently. I couldn't agree with you more on the uh, damage that the regulations to the pension fund industry have done to the allocation towards particularly smaller company equities, UK equities. Um, over the last 20 years. It really is absolutely shocking how we can berate ourselves for not having um, capital markets in this country that are fit for purpose, which I think they are, but we berate ourselves that they're not. Uh, yet we've got a pension fund industry that is barely, barely allocates towards our own equity market and proper risk assets, which, as you say, are the highest returning. I mean, regulators see the word risk and they say, well, that must be bad. I think risk, I mean, certainly when I started, risk came with the word reward. Yes. And that's important because you, you calculated and tried to understand risk to get that reward. There is a concern today that risk is seen as a dirty word. Sure. And as a result, we try and eradicate risk. Well, if you eradicate risk, you eradicate return. And obviously, that is a real, real problem for the government. So I, I think, and I'm well, hoping- fundamental level, you eradicate human progress. You know, well, that's if, you know it, 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 <laughs> we just become vegetables <laughs> if we don't take risk. Absolutely right. So coming back to the Aquis Markets business, what have you done to subscription prices? Have you raised those prices? Is the priority to grow the number of users? 
Well, we want to do both. We What was a sort of really, really important year last year, 2022, when we actually did raise price for the first time, and that is the first time in the 10 years of this company being in existence, we okay. had changed the bands for the, the, the yeah. subscription pricing, but we'd actually never raised price. The fact that we didn't see any pushback from our customers, I think, tells us the strength and the position that we're in. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to raise prices every year. We won't. Uh, but it does give that capability to raise price in the future. And I think you know, what is important to us is, yes, we want to continue to build market share. Yes, we want to continue to um, get new customers on board. But I also know now that the model is proven and that the ability to raise prices in the future is perfectly possible and, you know, and has been proven has been done. So, yes, um, you know, we were able to raise price. So coming on and talking about the data side of the business, we had a bit of a discussion around the consolidated tape and the prospects for one in Europe, UK and Europe. I gather there's been some movement within the EU in recent weeks. What's happening here? Well, this is pretty exciting for us because I think we are disproportionately advantaged if a consolidated tape comes in. Um, we don't charge our members today data. And under a consolidated tape, there would be an obligation to receive revenue from data because that is the way that, that it would operate. In other words, if it copies the United States where you have a consolidated tape authority, all exchanges, platforms, MTFs are obligated to send their data to a central um, repository, that, that is the CTA. They then distribute that out to all the users, set the price. The price is materially cheaper than what it is in, in Europe and the UK. And the um, revenue minus their costs is distributed back to the platforms, the, the exchanges, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because we don't charge the members, we would get a distribution back that we don't receive today. So it would actually be very, very positive for the company. Um, what happened last week is that the, the, the things that make up Europe is in order to get things passed, you have to have the council, which is the representatives of each country, the politicians, which are the politicians within each country, and you have the European Commission. And that is negotiating what they call trilogue. And the trilogue eventually last week, I think it was on Thursday, the announcement came out that an agreement has been made for a European consolidated tape. And what that means is they've agreed on a post-trade tape of record. That means all bargains that have transacted, there will be an official record. And a pre-trade, um, it'll be an anonymous, so you won't know who, what, where the prices are, but a pre-trade top of the book, in other words, the best bid and the best offers, will also be a label, uh, will be available, and it will be on um, a real-time basis. Now, that's really, really important that that negotiation um, has actually come to a conclusion. The traditional exchanges didn't want to see a pre-trade. The banks, brokers, many other people wanted to see a full pre-trade book and they've compromised. And actually, I think this compromise is good because okay. what is really important is we must have a consolidated tape in Europe. In fact, we must have a consolidated tape in the UK because without it, you really don't get to prove best execution. And best execution is critical part of 
a trading so that retail and institutional clients know that they have traded to the best way they possibly can. And actually, with the consumer duty coming out um, this month in the UK, you know, which is all outcomes based regulation and getting the best outcome for your client, it is really important that we have a consolidated tape in place to make quite certain that people are trading, people are trading in order to get the best outcome for their clients. So yes, really exciting news for Aquis, the consolidated tape. Um, I'm hoping now that the UK will advance their tape um, as quickly as possible and that we can get some form of um, sort of coordination between the tapes. Because at the end of the day, what people want is a single tape really across all of Europe so that any single market that you get in Europe and in the UK and in Switzerland, you'll be able to identify where the prices are and what you traded at within a very, very short period of time. It is amazing, isn't it, that we've had how many decades of regulation insisting or pointing um, market participants to be able to justify best execution, yet not having the tools to be able to do so? Well, you, you, what happens is you get independent tools, and are those independent tools a recognised standard in order to be able to right. justify the execution? Here, you are going to have a standard, and of course, standard setting is going to be a really important next stage of the consolidated tape. But once you've got that, uh, and, and what this has done, and I think this is you know has really changed, is it's not an if the consolidated tape comes to Europe. Now there is some time setting. It is a matter of when. I still think we're probably a couple of years away from okay. it being properly introduced, but it is now when, and that's really important. And do you think the UK can just fall into line quite quickly on this? Um, I think so, I, I, and I hope so. But of course, you know, politics plays um, a very large amount uh, or mm. against sort of common sense sometimes. <laughs> and you know, what we want to do here is what is commercially right and sensible for industry or for, and yeah. for the financial services market sometimes is held back because politically it may not be seen to cooperate with certain groups or certain parties. Um, I, I think all that is complete rubbish. I want to make a marketplace that is tradable for everybody and everybody can have access. I mean, my original vision has not changed, which is you know every single person on this planet should be able to get a smartphone and be able to trade any asset class anywhere for a subscription-based price every month, you know, de minimis amount. That's when we will have succeeded. And, and I believe, you know, within a decade or so, that's where we'll be. So let's talk a little bit about primary listings and the Aquis Stock Exchange. The last year or so since we last spoke, it's not been a great time for IPOs and equity raisings. But as you mentioned earlier, the Aquis Stock Exchange has managed to punch above its weight in a difficult market. Have the innovations that you brought in when you acquired what became the Aquis Stock Exchange, like market maker incentives and the segmentation of the market, have they worked as planned? Some have and some haven't, if I'm absolutely truthful. The segmentation, um, uh, it, I think, has been the right thing to do. And the segmentation is about this sort of schools. In other words, companies are like children. They start young, they grow, and, and ulti you know, the, 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 they ultimately mature. Uh, and you need, when you educate your children, different methods of teaching. 
primary school teaching is very different to secondary school teaching. And, and certainly when you go to university, you're on your own under the guidance of a professor. And we need companies to have different stages of being public. And I've really, and part of the problem when we went public as a company, I found it really difficult that we had the same sort of um, corporate governance structure as BP. And I think we had about 30 staff at the time. You know, it didn't make any sense. So things were not proportionate um, and certainly weren't appropriate. And by creating this sort of school where entrepreneurs can see a very, very clear path of how they go from one school to the next segment and then further up um, at a, you know, a good cost with a full understanding of how they can finance their business, take some of the sort of uncertainty out of being an entrepreneur. So I think the segmentation has worked really well. And, and you know, I think that's one of the reasons why we, we, we probably perform better than our rival. Um, Having said that, the market making side of the thing has been, no, no, it hasn't worked at all. The incentive of getting market makers to make tighter prices and compete against each other hasn't actually resulted in what we wanted. Um, and I think we're now looking at different ways and different mechanisms of which we can get proper price discovery out into micro cap and small cap. And we're talking to regulators, treasury government about some of these things and, and how we can move forward. I'm not saying that market makers is a bad thing out there. They themselves have very little capital to provide. But, you know, we, we need to find a better mechanism in order to get continuous pricing or certainly to get better pricing and better price discovery. And I think that can be done through more innovative technology than we have, than the industry has today. And that's one of the things we're looking at trying to introduce. That sort of leads us on to the, I guess, the more, the wider more macro topic of, the place of the UK in global equity markets as a listing venue, as a as a place to do business. What's your take on all this? And sounds from what you just said, you've been consulted by government or you're in consultation with government. What do you think needs to be done? Is Are we dealing with a structural issue here or is this just another cyclical problem that has been amplified as a structural one? No, I think this is a structural problem. Um, and I think I'm very lucky. I chair the City UK's Business Council. and I also sit on the panel of the FCA Practitioners Panel. So I get access to a number of policymakers that, that others may not um, have, have that sort of privilege. I, I think, I mean, often I talk about NASDAQ and, and you know, Aquis wanting to be like a NASDAQ uh, in Europe, not NASDAQ Europe, but a NASDAQ in Europe. And, and you've got to look at why the United States is seen as the best capital market in the world. And I think that's recognized that they have the deepest capital markets. I believe it's two reasons behind that. The first is the competitive tension by having two exchanges. When NASDAQ got Microsoft in the 1990s, how it transformed and changed the way the New York Stock Exchange operates. And that competitive tension that created this innovation between the two exchanges has allowed the market to drive far further forward than you've seen around the rest of the world. And in the rest of the world, we don't really see competitive tension between exchanges. There might be competition between national exchanges, but over very little business because most companies that are in one country tend to list in that country. That's different when it comes to NASDAQ and to the NYSE. Tech yeah. companies around the world want to go there. And that brings me to the second point and the second difference is the valuations. If you took the FTSE 100 and you actually valued it 
on NASDAQ, you'd get around about half a trillion dollars more value. And people ask, why do people move to the United States? Well, they've got deep capital markets, but they've got the right values or they've got higher values. That higher value is driven by simple supply and demand. The appetite for retail and you have the 401k pensions, which is their pension plans. The interest in equity is enormous. Anybody who's been to Chicago or New York and mentions when they get into a taxi that they work in the equities business, the taxi driver's light, you know, eyes light up and they start talking about stocks. The appetite there is completely different to what we have here. And I think that retail interest in equities is there because not just the pension scheme, but it's easy to access. Every stockbroker gives it really simple way. You just pick up your phone, you trade, and you know it's, it's really easy for them. We don't have that here. We absolutely don't have that here, particularly when it gets down to the lower and smaller companies. It's not easy to access. It's not easy to trade. The liquidity is gens, tends to be incredibly poor. And I see you know, it's not just on us, but also on the A market spreads of 10, 15, 20, even sometimes 50, 100 percent wide. Yep. That's not an incentive for anybody to go and trade. You know, you might turn around and say regulated growth markets like ourselves are um, exempt from inheritance tax and stamp duty. But if a spread happens to be 50% wide, why should anybody trade? Yeah. So we have to find a incentives and mechanisms to make it simple for people. And that does mean that we have to change some of the vested interests that are out there today in order to allow people to have research at their fingertips, pricing at their fingertips, being able to access markets through through very, very simple ways. Uh, an information flow which gives data out to them at a way discounted price so that they can see how their trades are performing. If we do that, and I believe the UK can do that, and I think that's one of the things that this government and, and whoever is in government next um, will, is very, will be very pro-business and pro-competition. If we get that right, then we can actually make the UK a very, very attractive pace, place to raise primary and have secondary trading for companies. You you sound like you're confident that policymakers and regulators of this industry understand the issues that you talk about here. I, I think they may not be able to understand the detail of trading and capital markets themselves, but they understand the problem that we're in today. It's pretty simple facts. Companies are leaving the United Kingdom to go to America. Yeah. SMEs need scale-up capital. This country is brilliant at startup capital, and yeah. it is perfectly rubbish, actually, at the scale-up phase. The very point that an entrepreneur is starting to make the serious progress and wants to scale their business, we lose that company in the UK, often to a US uh, venture capital um, finance business or whatever. And that's wrong. We haven't you know, succeeded in keeping the unicorns that we made over the last few years. But I do believe that we're in an incredibly strong position if we get this right for tomorrow's unicorns to be public and grow them on public markets and keep them within the United Kingdom. It's great for financing the businesses we need. It's great for investors. And it's great for the UK economy. It's a real win-win. So you mentioned just now about the Equinox 
product, the world's first regulated 24-7 stock exchange. Is is this operating in reality? Are we able to trade shares 24-7? This is a product we sell. We have a technologies business. We've sold it uh, a couple of times. um, And on one of the occasions, it's it's up and running. So, you know, it's in for different products and different things around the globe. Uh, do I believe that 24-7 share trading will exist? Yes, I do. I am a believer. I, I sat on a group last week that told me that how much we should sh- shorten the trading hours. I am completely and utterly against it. I think there will be liquidity moments throughout a day. But I actually think trading capability will move to 24-7 for all asset classes. And that is the way that I think people want, You know, if I look at the retail market, they certainly want that to happen. Um, so, so. Yes, the, the, the Equinox product is, is very exciting, not just because itself, yes, it's suitable for a stock exchange, but actually we're starting to look at, is it actually suitable outside of financial services? Because if I look at the total accessible market for a product which operates a matching engine in financial services, that's basically the platforms and exchanges. And they're probably 150, 200 in the world. So we might have a, a, a TAM of maybe sort of 120, 150 people. And not everybody's going to take Aquis technology. I'm sure our direct competitors are not going to take our technology. So that's one thing. And that's a huge opportunity for us. And we've invested very heavily we, in, in that business and will continue to invest. In fact, it was growing at 55% revenues last year. And I, and I believe that in the future, we will see very, very significant growth in the Aquis technologies business. But think about it, what happens outside of financial services. I'm sure many of the listeners today will know of Betfair or eBay. When you look at them, they are matching engines. And if you look at procurement, if you look at um, just you know anything, uh, it's selling seats to an event, it's all matching. If you can have a 24-7 product that reduces costs enormously and never has any downtime because you are able in the cloud to use cloud native technology that will allow for all forms of updates, uh, you know, clear outs and all these different things you need to do in systems that insist on having downtime. Here with Equinox, no downtime. It is perpetual. It is up and running 24-7 and can operate around the globe. So that can be really, really different for some of the other uses outside of financial services. And we've just hired our very first person to start looking and investigating of selling Equinox outside of the financial services industry. And, you know, should that succeed, then that completely changes the the, the um, total access, accessible market for us. I think you talked about this at the very well-attended Capital Markets Day a few months ago. Can you talk about the any any of the specific non-financial market applications that we're talking about here? Well, I think, uh, as I said, you know, things like sort of the auction houses or, okay. or any form of matching there, uh, whether it's seats, whether it's we, we had a, a you know, the, the, if you look at the airline industry, you know, the airline they have global industry, they're buying and selling tickets all the time, or people are. Um, we, you know, the entertainment industry, all these different things, they all need really, really advanced matching engines. The one thing about operating an exchange grade matching engine is we know we can do millions of messages a second. We know as a public market that we have the capacity and the capability of being exchange grade, in other words, yeah. highly regulated. Bring that sort of regulated technology into some of these other industries outside of financial services. I think there's some some big advantages for those companies to look at. So is blockchain 
still an opportunity for market technology? Uh, yes, it is. But it's also, I think, very misunderstood. I think there's a lot of people out there trying to monetize blockchain solutions. The problem with blockchain is it is a perfect end of the day product. Um, it doesn't solve some of the trading issues like uh, netting. You know, somebody who is a market maker who want to, yeah. may want to trade thousands, if not tens of hundreds of thousands of trades a day. Um, you want to settle in one bargain at the end. And they can't if everything is done on a single blockchain where every bargain is settled. That can actually add cost to the system. And also, it's not possible to trade at the same level on a distributed ledger technology. You can't trade as quickly. So yes, maybe technology could resolve some of the speed issues, but it doesn't solve the total thing. What I do think is we will end up with some form of hybrid solution where the blockchain will, or some form of distributed ledger, will actually be the end solution. Because what that does is we will then be able to move to T plus zero. I don't think atomic settlement, for the reasons I've just said, will ever happen, or certainly won't happen in my lifetime. But I do think T plus zero will. I know there's a big move by the government for T plus one, and I fully support the move. But it's a temporary move. Because if you look into the future, people, what you do with T plus one is you put two cart horses in front of the plow, it goes a bit faster. But actually, nothing materially changes. Yeah. It, it's a, in effect, some people will have to go to T plus zero just to get to T plus one. So longer term, you've got to think. So many things that we work on in Aquis is how do we get to T plus zero? And what sort of technologies do we need? And there will be some form of distributed ledger that will be required in order to do this. So I'm well off piste here, but aren't the layer one technologies that can allow for more rapid messaging, say, for intraday netting, which then can be netted off at the end of the day on a blockchain. But maybe that's not consistent with perpetual trading or T plus zero. Like all these things that, that you've got to find solutions to those problems. I mean, even on a T plus zero, there has to be a market close at some point in time just to have yeah. a point in time for people to reference if you look at best execution. And, you know, so I, I think all these problems are solvable and I think they're solvable with some form of hybrid solution, as you said, a sort of, you know, um, part this, part that. And, and I think the technology capabilities today are there. I think in truth, there are vested interests that don't want some of this thing to happen because there are areas of the market that would definitely, costs, I think, that are added to the market that would be taken out, but are very beneficial to certain participants today. And I imagine risk as well. I mean, T plus zero sounds great, but I'm, it makes me think of Silicon Valley Bank and the fact that it lost something like 80 billion of assets in eight or nine hours due to people having access to their money via their app on their phone rather than having to stand in line to make withdrawals as people had to in the 0809 crisis. I, I, I'm not certain I agree fully with what you say. I think this is about how you manage that risk, what is, you know, um, who your customers are. Uh, I think Silicon Valley is a very different thing to looking just at what the equity markets are. So sure. I, I don't I, I, yeah. agree. I, I wouldn't want to go back to a day whereby, you know, we all have to go and write our checkbook and run it around to the NetWest or whatever to go and um, buy our shares. I, I, I think we have to move forward here, not move backwards. 
Oh, I'm, I'm disappointed. I, I just want. I thought perhaps we'd have the two-week period of account for settlement, and we could we could have uh, we could do a few bargains on the stock exchange floor and go for a nice lunch at Jonathan's. Uh, That's what yeah. we all used to do all those years ago. <laughs> and as fun as it was, life has definitely moved on for the better. Okay. Yeah, I will agree with that. Yeah, reluctantly, I have to agree with you. Um, you talked earlier about the journey of the last 10 years and the sleepless night be you know weekend where you felt you possibly wouldn't be able to pay your staff on the monday morning and you had obviously had a stronger culture than you had assumed because your staff basically said well pay us when you can you're now a much bigger business how do you retain as much of that team culture as you grow and as people work from home and as your business develops in so many different areas? Well, well, culture to me is probably the most important thing you get in any company. And it tends to come from the top or certainly within your management team. Uh, we're a fintech company. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, although we might be a stock exchange and a trading platform and a te- technologies business, but primarily the thing that sits underneath all of this is the technology. So we, we are a fintech business. I think it's really important that you know, there aren't necessarily different cultures within the three different businesses. There should be a single culture for the company and people have to row in the same direction. We do many, many things. We had to tackle the problem of how do we get people back into the office? And I think this has happened with most companies who work in almost any industry in the United Kingdom. How do we get people back more often than they would necessarily like to be? And the the way you do that is it's got to be exciting in the office because you get the senior people in because all senior people just either they're more you know they're older they're more you know they get they're used to being in an office um, and they want to be there five days a week and the young people want to be five days a week but it's actually that really important middle tier of how do you train the young people how do you get them to be at the next tier if there are not people around in order to train them. So we do a lot of things. We, we had actually a, a, a subcommittee that went out and talked to every member of staff. You know, everybody was allowed to join and, and become part of this group um, in order what things do they want to do in the office outside of just working here. And we do all sorts of things. We actually have one developer um, who's got 270 board games. And every two weeks, there's an entire board game evening, which he might bring 10, 20 different games in. It is amazing. I would think 50 to 60% of the staff stay in, including some of our board members who just love that type of thing and they want to be involved. We do every month sort of events and things for our staff to make certain that they are really aware of what's going on, but also enjoying themselves. And now I'm not saying this is a holiday camp here by any means, (laughs) but I think it is really, really important for people to realize that this work-life balance can mean you can be in the office and enjoy being in the office. Because I am old-fashioned. I actually genuinely believe that people together in an office will give you a better result than people together through a Zoom or Teams meeting. And that is simply because the the meetings you have over a coffee machine are really, really important because you solve problems that you may not know even exist if you aren't around that coffee machine. So talking about culture and um, taking you back to when we last spoke, have you re- revisited the jam pot recently or drunk any white port? 
Uh, that goes back for people who didn't hear <laughs> my, my very first interview, I think, uh, when to become a foreign exchange trader was done in the jam pot. Uh, no, I haven't actually visited it. I, I is, it is it still there? Market. No, I think it still is there. And we had an office, as you know, overlooking yeah. it. And I thought I was going to start my career and end my career 40 odd years later, um, overlooking the jam pot. It hasn't. I mean, we've grown so much. We've had to move office and, and now the jam pot is nowhere in sight. So I haven't actually been there. Uh, but I suppose that's a good sign in the fact that we've continued to grow business and hire people. So 2013, 10 years ago, um, must have been a very exciting, somewhat nerve-wracking period for you, okay. launching a new company, disruptive strategy into a market that you knew very well at the time and know very well today. How do those times compare to the feelings you have about the business today and its prospects? Well, I love this business. Um, I, I, yes, I was very, very excited in 2013, but it was a dream. And I had to make it into reality. And I'd never done it for myself. I'd run businesses for other people. And fortunately, they, they became successful. But doing it for yourself is a very, very different emotional feeling. And it's a very difficult time because, you know, you have high stress. You know, people often say you work very hard, Alistair. And I say, well, actually, I don't think I necessarily work hard. I stress very hard. Because I think when it's your own business, um, and now obviously we're a public company, so things are different. But you do stress very hard to begin with. Um, Jeremy, you might know, but uh, last year I, I was became quite ill, actually, at the end of last year. Um, and I was diagnosed with cancer, which is a life-changing moment. Uh, fortunately, I can tell everybody I'm through it. I had surgery. I was actually off for about eight weeks. Um, and the recent tests have all shown I'm completely cancer-free. But I think a lot of people ask you at that moment is, you know, this is a life-changing moment Surely. And I know the board came to me and said, you know, do you think you want to retire? You're 63 now, Alistair. And, and you know, is, is that something you're looking, we, we would expect you to fully understand if you did. But actually, uh, what I tell you it did is that for the period that I was unwell and unable to do anything and basically sort of lying in a bed watching television, I can promise you that watching lingo, tipping point, you know, the chase, eggheads or whatever it is, that is not how I want to spend the rest of my life. And I've come back. Um, more excited about the opportunity and more hungry. I actually said to the board, look, you know, I'd like to be here for another 45 years. That's what I've done. I'd like to do another one. And, um, you know, so there's absolutely no way am I going to give up um, in this business. I just feel so energized and so excited about what the future holds. And, you know, one lot of 10 years, brilliant. The second lot of 10 years, I'm probably way more excited than I was back in 2013. Well, I look forward to having this conversation or another conversation like this, hopefully before then, but another conversation like this in 2033. I thoroughly look forward to it. And uh, hopefully I'll be looking <laughs> well, forward to 43 and onwards. <laughs> I, I, that's, that's such good news regarding your health. I was aware of it because I was trying to get hold of you by email, I think, sometime last year. And uh, I think I had to email you twice and I thought you'd missed it and you uh, you mentioned it, and um, I, uh, I'm absolutely delighted, and I'm sure everyone else is, that you're back back in the fray and um, energised, as you described. That's great news. Thank you very much indeed. So thanks very much for your time today, Alistair. This has been a great uh, conversation. It's good to have the update, and I look forward to doing it again in the not-too-distant future. A great pleasure. Thanks very much. 
you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, inthecompanyofmavericks.com, where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes.